We are live in the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, At the Ballpark, A Fan's Companion by Kevin O'Malley and Charlie Vassilaro. Tonight's event, At the Ballpark, a phenomenal panel, and I just want to introduce you to that panel. Uh, in order, Roberta Newman, a cultural historian who teaches at NYU, writes about the connections between baseball and advertising. Russell Walensky is a punk rocker slash baseball historian who was raised on the mean streets of the 1960s, 1970s Bronx. Charlie Vassilaro is a vagabond freelance baseball travel writer who spends inordinate amounts of time in Cooperstown and spring training in Arizona, from where he issues frequent dispatches from newspapers and magazines around the country and speaks to various groups of people interested in baseball. And last but certainly not least, Lee Lowenfish, baseball author and CBN certified baseball nut, still remembers the thrill of seeing the green grass at the polo grounds at his first game in 1948. And for those of you wondering why the Pope is not with us tonight, the Pope is with us tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. Thank you, Lee, and thank, thanks to everybody so and much. I have no connection with WFAN. Yeah, uh, th thank God, so to speak. That other <laughs> uh, I would personally like to th thank Charlie because Charlie is the one who put all this together. Um, when Charlie said he has this book at the ballpark coming out, as many of you know who come to our events, we get into very detailed, uh, intricate, layered discussions. This is a different type of a book. It's really meant for an adult to give to a child, to bring to a ballpark. So it's a hard book to just center an entire event around. So I asked Charlie if he could put together a panel instead while we sell the book, and he did, and this is really a phenomenal panel that he put together. So I'm gonna kinda just moderate to some degree just to get us going. Anyone who has questions, we wanna make this very back and forth, just please raise your hand, and if you can kinda just keep it to questions, so since we do have four panelists, it would be appreciated. But kind of just to get us going, uh, on the counter over there, and it comes with all the baseballs that we make, it's remember your first baseball game. So I would just like to ask each panelist to tell us their memory of their first baseball game. Roberta? Well, I did not go to baseball when I was a kid because my father was so, my father who was a Yankees fan but moved to Brooklyn was so distraught when the Dodgers, who he shifted allegiance to, left, that he decided we would not be raised with baseball. So my first baseball game was when I was in college. And I went to see the, the 77 Yankees. And it was a madhouse in the bleachers. Um, I think it cost $2 to get in. And People were smoking weed, and sorry, I shouldn't share that. And people were were throwing things and screaming, and it was a revelation. Remember the guys selling Yankee joints? They were red, white, and blue. Russell. 1964 Yankee Stadium, left field bleachers. The only thing I remember about the game is I met Earl Batty. He was a, a kind of innocent kid, and so were we. Wait, on the Twins? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it was retired. It was, yeah. Uh, in 1972, my Uncle Tony, my mom's little brother, took me to see the Mets at Chase Stadium, and it was against the Montreal Expos, which is a funny thing to say, I guess. But uh, I remember the same thing, like it says on that panel over there, we were in uh, left field, not all the way up, but pretty high up. But there's that moment, of course, when you come through the tunnel and your life changes <laughs> after that first time when you walk through the tunnel. And I remember thinking, this is a place I would love to come back to again and again. And I was lucky. I had uncles, my mom's little brothers. They were big baseball nuts. My dad was not. And uh, my mom's brothers lived in Queens, and they were always going to games. And 
games, so I got to go along with them a lot when I was a kid. I was at the Pete Rose Bud Harrelson fight game when I was nine years old, and uh, I mean, <laughs> when I tell people I was at that one, you know, that's uh, uh, stops time. Well, that game I mentioned in the intro, I was six. I don't remember very much about it, except Johnny Antonelli was a bonus boy with the Boston Braves. And he's still alive, and I've never met him, but he's still alive as a, a auto dealer in Rochester, New York. He wound up a New York Giant later. He was pitching for Boston. I, I'm pretty sure he got knocked out, but the Braves won. But I, I guess the seminal game in my life as a baseball fan occurred the next uh, summer, a day before my birthday. June 26, 1949, and my memory's good, but it's not infallible. I did check this out, and this game I did remember correctly. The Yankees beat the Tigers in the first game pretty handily, and there's a guy sitting between me and my father, who my father was a Giants fan who hated the Yankees, and I wasn't a rebellious kid, so I picked this up. But this fan says, kid, why root for the Yankees? They're winners. And I'm beginning to, to say, well, you might have a point. <laughs> uh, the second game, Pat Mullen hit three home runs, cheap ones, it, into right field, the ones that McCann and uh, Beltran specialize in. <laughs> and he hit a cheap one left uh, to left field yesterday. And uh, from then on, I, I stayed with my commitment. And uh, I've had my ups and my downs, but I've stayed loyal to the uh, the Giants when they were still here, and then the Orioles, because I used to beat the Yankees regularly. <laughs> so those are all your first game, your, your memories uh, of all sorts. And Charlie's book is really about going, taking this book to a ballpark. And besides being a fan, a lot of it is, uh, or a lot of what Charlie and I have discussed is playing the game as a child. So. The game is played in many different ways, depending on where you grow up and so forth. So if the panel would just like to talk a little bit about, not from a fan's perspective, but from playing the game as, as a child. You want to start, Roberta? Sure. Yeah. Well, that I did do, except that we didn't, uh, let's just be clear about this. I grew up in Flatbush, and girls didn't play baseball. They didn't, not even, the girl on my block who played all the games and played them well, she wasn't even invited to play stickball. Girls did not play baseball. But we played all these hybrid baseball type games. We played kickball, although that was more of an organized thing. I first played that at a bungalow colony in the Catskills during uh, uh, my parents failed experiment at trying to get us out of the city. My mother read Proust all summer <laughs> and <laughs> left me to my own devices. So, it, so I learned to play kickball. And I'm not very athletic. I don't know how many of you play kickball. It's basically baseball with a volleyball. Um, Sometimes they put it like t-ball, but the way we played it, it was rolled. We actually or bounced. We actually had a pitcher, and I wasn't very coordinated, and I couldn't run very fast, and I couldn't field very well. But I was much bigger than all the other kids my age, and I could kick that ball. So it was the one sort of place where I felt like I could excel athletically because they knew when I when I came up, I'd, I'd kick a home run if they could find the ball afterwards, just because I was the biggest kid. Um, yeah, so that was that was the primary way we played. We also played punch ball, which was mostly a boys game, but sometimes um, the girls were allowed to play, and stoop ball, which I'll let other people talk about, because we all played some version of stoop ball, I think. We called it different things, but I think we all played it. Play punch, <clears throat> big punch ball as well. We played in PS41. Um, first of all, we never played. I don't think I've ever played baseball on grass as well. I mean, real grass. <laughs> <laughs> Until I was about 30. It was always on concrete. And we played punch ball. And we had a little kind of Fenway Park thing that was a short left field. But the problem was if you hit it over that fence, there was the 
quintessential old lady who won't give you a ball back. They do exist. So anything you hit the left field was out. You couldn't hit the ball. So we're playing on concrete, bases, yellow paint, and we're punching the ball as far into right field as we can, which was enormous. Also played what we used to call off the stoop because unlike Brooklyn, the Bronx doesn't have a whole lot of brownstones, and I don't think we knew what a stoop was. But we used to play it off the curb of the sidewalk. And again, single, double, triple, depending on how far. You get it off, it's Spalding, D-E-E-N. <laughs> off the point, and the closer you get it to right on the point, and the best, the best curve you had, the sharpest curve you could find, the further it would go. So you'd be awarded, um, as far as you hit the ball, unless you broke a window. In which case, again, you were out. <laughs> but we called it off the curb. We called it. We called it off the stoop. I think we just like saying stoop. <laughs> I grew up on Long Island, so it's a little different than what they're talking about in the city. I, I was born in the city, but we moved out to the island in time for me to start playing ball. And uh, I had a neighborhood full of kids, so we all just knocked on each other's doors, or we met after school. And uh, I had a, a really fierce rivalry with my neighbor, Vinny Nastasi. And I, you know, even saying his name now kind of gets me a little bit, you know. <laughs> he was my friend, but he was also my rival. And he was a little bit older than me. He was a year older than me, he was much bigger than me. And he had a little brother named Mike and my brother Chris. And oftentimes it was just two against two. And we would play a self-pitch game with a tennis ball in the street where you know, had one fielder and one in the infield, one guy in the infield, one guy in the outfield. And a lot of different like ground rules. If it bounced once and you fielded it clean, that was an out. You had pitcher's hand. If the guy was running the first and you could get it to the pitcher before he got to first, then that's an out. Um, we had kind of imaginary bases. I remember there was a scuff in the curb. There was a scuff where somebody had hit the curb. And it was just about at a nice angle from where we played home plate. So I said, okay, that's first base. Second base was just kind of imaginary, out in the street. Had to get somewhere where you thought you were <laughs> there. And third base, again, was just the opposite of the scuff on the curve on first. So it was, you know, a judgment call. Everything was judgment calls, which made for a lot of arguments, of course. And uh, we often played with a tennis ball because there was houses pretty close to where we were playing, and the broken window thing was an issue. Um, uh, Vinny was stronger than me. If he threw one and blasted it, a lot of times I remember having to go run and get, get the tennis ball and it was just a home run for Vinny. And uh, uh, we also played wiffle ball, uh, a lot of wiffle ball. And he had a great backyard with a clothesline that was uh, you know, straight across, we're behind the house, just playing on a rectangle. And obviously the clothesline was gonna be a homer if he got it over and it was just the right distance for a wiffle ball game too. If a ball went under the clothesline on a fly, we called that a double. The clothesline was attached to a tree, and in the bottom of the tree was like a little rabbit hole or something. And that was a very rare shot if you could put a ball in that hole, but that was a triple. So there was hardly ever any triples. If it magically went in there, that was a thing. And like your field, there was no left field. It was just dead center and a little bit of right, because once that tree uh, where, the, where the line was drawn, the rest of it was woods. <laughs> and uh, you didn't want to hit it there, because you might lose it. So we had to play within the confines. But my favorite thing about wiffle ball was playing at night in the summertime, because uh, he had you know, turned the light switch on in the backyard and it, that made it exciting. And, and it was summertime, we could stay out a little bit later. And he was my neighbor, so I wasn't too far from home. I could get away with staying out till 10 o'clock, playing wiffle ball, which we pushed it to the limit all the time. We were always playing wiffle ball at 10 o'clock in the summertime. Did the wiffle ball have holes in it? The wiffle ball had holes in it. And we threw all sorts of trick pitches you know, um, I remember the, you know, my change-up and palm ball, and I was always trying to take something off of it, get Vinny out in front of that pitch, you know, and uh, <laughs> try, try and look like I was throwing hard, but take something off of it. And uh, we had the Vita Blue pitch back. You remember the pitch back, which had the strike zone in it. So that is a strike if it was in there. And there was, uh, you know, there was no arguing about that. And if you took one, you took it, you know, and it was a strike. So. Uh, and those games could be one-on-one -on -one or two-on-two. And Vinny and his brother against me and my brother, if they got in a fight, 
if Vinny got mad at his brother, or if I got mad at my brother, we would often trade him because <laughs> you knew the game wasn't going too well when there was a fight between one team the whole time. So I said, just give me Mike, you can have Chris. And so <laughs> we, we, we did that a lot. Well, my story is a pretty short story. I was raised uh, a block south of uh, 58th of, of Central Park. Grew up on the eighth floor of a building that's still there, a very stately building. But I like to say when I was born, the average age of my building dropped by about 10 years. There was literally nobody in my building my age except a couple of models who were from uh, Argentina and they were fashion models and they, uh, uh, that, that wasn't, we, there was no bonding there. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I, I'm, when I hear these stories of Andrews, you know, I, I hadn't thought of this for a long time, but I, I would, uh, I was a baseball nut from an early age, incurable, and I would, you know, throw a ball against the ceiling to sort of have a catch with myself. And uh, the, the painters would come in, back then they did it, come in every three years and they had to do a special job. Uh, but, you know, so my great thrills later were playing softball. I, I, I grew up near Hatcher Diamonds, but I never, I played there maybe once in a, in a school game. My only memory is I'm in the outfield and I'm backing up a wild throw. And I may have saved the game, you know. The Cubs almost lost the game today when Toronto butchered a double into a triple in the corner. So, you know, you have a role for that. But, no, my thrills were to play in Hexer Diamonds in the show league for one season. And uh, uh, my uh, long-suffering sweetheart I took to uh, Maria to where I hit a home run in Baltimore when I lived down there. To be honest, it was a rolling single. Uh, but I rounded the bases and I ran, I ran across this guy's name, who butchered the ball online the other day, but basically a nice, nice game. I didn't uh, friend him on Facebook, but I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, they're obviously all different types of memories, but they're all extremely detailed, uh, the memories that you have, and I'm sure we all have our own detailed memories that way. Uh, so now, to just to kind of bring it to modern, current day, uh, it, during the summer, Marcy and I took a vacation to Vermont. And, you know, in the city, sometimes you, you forget, like maybe there's the extra softball fields, and there's a few other ball fields around Red Hawk and Central, Northern Central Park. But it's mainly softball fields for the most part in, in certain Manhattan or Blacktops. Uh, but we're driving around Vermont, and of course, it's beautiful with mountains and, and the lake, Champlain, but, and I noticed all that, but I also noticed these baseball fields scattered about that you don't really see when you're in the city all the time. And it was beautiful and sad because other than one moment when we passed one ball field where there was a group, and it was very organized, you could tell it was a coach, pretty serious uh, group out there of teenagers. The rest of it was just empty. There was never anybody on a ball field for the week plus that we were there driving around. And this is in August in beautiful weather in Vermont. You're, you, you know, you're playing at night till your parents yelled, where, where are you? And you know, I have those memories too, you know, same thing. And here, there was nobody on a ball field for a week in, in beautiful weather in Vermont. It's obviously, it's different now. So, and though somebody on the panel doesn't think it's different, if you, if you don't think it's different, feel free to disagree. But uh, either take that side, or what can be done, if anything, to, to get kids back on those ball fields again? There's some great baseball in New York City. Sandlot Baseball, if you want to look around for it. In Inwood, there's a lot. And then on uh, Labor Day weekend, I was um, tooling around Cortona Park in the Bronx. And it was a championship game between two teams, Latinos, and they were good. They were really good. But the funny thing was no one ran it out the first. They, they didn't run it out the first. But it, it's out there. You just have to kind of look for it. When you say they didn't run out the first, what do you mean? Ground balls? Yeah, stuff? yeah, ground balls. They would just kind of... Yeah. I wonder where that come. made me think, where, this, where does that come from? 
watching the Yankees. <laughs> but everything else was was minorly was minorly good. Well, you know, I, I agree with you, Jay, but the phenomenon goes way back to, you know, I, I was just thinking, uh, I'm uh, at an Oreo Yankee game 25 years ago, and some kid, teenage, 10, 12-year-old kid, says, where's Ben McDonald? You know, they're, they're ballyhoo, number one pick in the country. Uh, he had an arm that was so hand so big he could hold six baseballs, but he never but he never he, he never learned to pitch with the one that he needed. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and so he was a, it wasn't a bust, but he, he didn't. And so I said he's in the minor leagues. He's learning his trade. He says, well, I have him on my fantasy team, and I wish he'd come up soon. You know, I mean they're not they're not learning the basics of the game, and it's a hard game. It's a very hard game to master. I can speak from experience and tell you that at Prospect Park in Brooklyn, um, there are kids playing. There are baseball diamonds, and there are kids playing, boys and girls playing baseball. Um, there's an instructional league, um, uh, several instructional leagues that run there in the spring. It is under the aegis of Little League, but it's not what we think of when we think of Little League and, and the whole, it's an instructional league. Any kid who wants to play can sign up. There's no test or anything, and they balance the teams um, so that every team's got the good kid and every team's got the bad kid. And uh, I have an experience as a parent because my son was the bad kid, but the kid who loved it, and they put him on a team of kids who were all Puerto Rican and Dominican. And the parent, the father, the coach teaching the fundamentals wouldn't tolerate bad sportsmanship. And so the team would request my son to be their, their I won't say bad, their unskilled player. Every, like mother, like daughter, <laughs> like mother, like son, right? My daughter wasn't so great either, she played too. Uh, but the, there was a league out there, they were out there every day in Prospect Park, and they were teaching the kids the fundamentals. And this was parents volunteering, no professional coaches. These kids were not heading for the major leagues. Most of them didn't play baseball in high school. And then you see the diamonds in use all summer long. All summer long. Pickup games, people bringing their kids out there. You don't have to reserve a diamond if there's no little league. You're not allowed to run your dogs on the diamond. So this is this is Brooklyn, and there are kids playing. Now, do they play pickup games the way the kids did when I was little? No. But that's got to do with the fact that kids don't go out and play by themselves unsupervised really anymore. I mean, they do somewhat, but, and, you know, stickball can be, is, you know, you break a car window, there are insurance things. But I would argue there are kids out there playing and enjoying it. Yeah, there's Prospect Park in Brooklyn. But, you know, also in other places, they're not. Yeah. I think what you're saying about the not going outside yes. Is, yes. is huge. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and I think that the, you know, the, the recent age of technology and all the other uh, types of entertainment which mostly are, are visual, you know, video and digital uh, entertainment. I think I think a lot of kids probably play more uh, video baseball on the TV than actual baseball. Uh, you know what is it? The uh, you know the games that come out every year, the new ones uh, for the yeah 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 <laughs> yeah. I think I think that's that's in a lot of ways. I think that's replaced what what we used to do after school. Because yeah, well, it didn't exist <laughs> for one reason. But, so, but uh, you know, and and I, I guess I came from a latchkey era. You know, my parents were both at work when I came home, three o'clock in the afternoon. So I was looking for something to do. And, you know, and, and and I did have people who lived nearby. But I don't see the pickup games. I do see a lot of organized ball. I watch a lot. I went to the Little League World Series in Williamsport. I mean, it's you know very intense, and those kids are, are serious, which is nice to see people at that age playing so well. I do like that. But it doesn't seem as fun. It doesn't seem as, uh, you know, the, for play's sake, playing for play's sake, uh, which you don't see a lot of that. You know, me and Vinny would fight 
we wanted to win, but we also just liked playing and, uh, and, and, and even throwing the ball up in the air. You know, I used to throw it against the f back of the fireplace in the driveway, and I broke my dad's car windshield bouncing a ball off the thing. But, uh, but I, I, that was, again, outdoor, recreational. I don't know if there's an answer to the question that you asked, how do you cultivate that again? I don't know how, how, how you start that up again. Um, uh, you know, that, that Perry's got an answer. What do you got? Reach out to girls. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Girls, there is actually a renaissance because, as Roberta knows, women and girls did play a long time ago and have been playing, but there, I, there is a, a rebirth of, and growth uh, and expansion of girls and women that are playing baseball because more and more opportunities are opening up for them because there are women like Justine Siegel organizations would get over the resistance um, and thinking that, you know, this opening up the pathways to one or several girls who are talented enough and ambitious enough and have the desire to want to play because they don't have teams of girls they play on, so naturally they gravitate towards boys teams. If they would get over that and welcome them, it's not going to be an invasion, you know, an influx of, you know, raging estrogen-crazed banshees. It, no, it's going to be yeah working with and partnering with and creating more opportunities for everybody and fueling the desire in, in young boys to emulate the girls that they see out there as well as in young girls who don't have those role models right now or they don't have as many as, as they should have. But to me, that, that, that is one obvious solution that people don't fixate on because it, you know the paradigm has been that women are sort of invisible in the baseball universe, but um, if we weren't, um, I think it would It opens make up it the open field, that's for sure. And yeah, girls yeah. just want to have fun and play yeah. singing. Oh, I know. <laughs> Some of the girls on those instructional teams, let me tell you. Yeah, because they start young, and they're inculcated into the baseball culture the way boys are practically in utero in this country. And when they start young and they um, are taught young and instilled in good fundamentals, they can keep up with the boys, even well into high school. I know a lot of girls that are playing, uh, almost 1,500 girls have played varsity high school baseball in this past day. And a lot of them have done very well. It, and, and girls are going to college on baseball scholarships. Yeah, it's happening. It really is happening. I'll say, um, who's the girl in France who uh, entered the draft? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, and obviously, Monet Davis. I have a, a nephew and a niece. And uh, my nephew's about 12, and my niece is nine. And she likes baseball way more than him. And, and the Monet Davis thing really grabbed her. She went and bought her book recently. Well, and, yeah, uh, those meteoric, comet-like figures yeah. that streak across the baseball tournament are good for a moment. But what we really need is an infrastructure designed to draw girls and women into the, you know, the already yeah. existing leagues and programs um, so that we're just part of the scene and that nobody makes a big scene about it. Actually, I, uh, I just want to, that's a, uh, all great points. I always thought you should be the commissioner anyway, so. Uh, <laughs> but I want to just throw this out to the panel. I wasn't planning to ask this, but it just floated on. Uh, I know today the Pope is in town, but at Rosh Hashanah dinner, I was arguing with uh, my niece about this issue. I said one day there will be a woman in the major leagues. I would like to get the panels of our thoughts on that. Well, I, well, when I was teaching Baltimore, I think it's 40 years ago, Bill Peck spoke in class and he talked about uh, he could see a woman's second baseman coming, making it. Uh, I mean, the way the way the the pitchers are breaking down, despite the pitch counts and everything, it's conceivable that. Uh, that a woman, you know, picture could, you know. I mean, I'm off the ferry book about creating this infrastructure so that Monet Davis, the last I heard, still wants to play basketball at the University of Connecticut because that's the big, the, the, the other chance. There you know, are everyone, opportunities for her beyond high school. Yeah, college. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I think it's possible. You know. 
but uh, I, uh, I defer to Roberta, who has a, as far as I know, a thousand point, hundred uh, percent uh, prediction rate. Uh, you, you're the one a couple years ago predicted that the the uh, the next fan cave of members would be both men and women, mm -hmm. and she was absolutely True. right. Yeah. So I don't know if you have other predictive qualities. But um, I, I don't. I don't know, but I think that perhaps um, there are some young women knuckleballers now. In Japan. And yeah, 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 yeah. And and there's really no reason why, if you think about it, that a woman couldn't be a successful knuckleball pitcher in the major leagues because it doesn't require power. Um, so that would be my guess, that at some point you would see a knuckleball pitcher. Um, I don't know about, you know, I don't know about the culture, because, because if we're talking about the major leagues, if we're talking about organized baseball, I mean, it's so much more conservative than any other organized sport. Um, they really are, and in terms of their, um, acceptance of things that, that are not traditional. Um, they're so slow to change that I think it's going to be a while, but I think you'll see a, I think you'll see a knuckleball pitcher. Um, do you think that you think that there could be knuckleballers too? I definitely agree with that. I think there are going to be a couple of once girls make it into the major leagues and confident will happen soon, very soon. Um, but I feel like the girls, at first, the first couple of females who make it into the major leagues will follow um, what more major league players do. I think, I would think that the repertoire of a lot of the first females in the major leagues would include more plain pitches, but I do agree with you, there are definitely going to be some knuckleballers, but I do think that the first couple of females are just going to go five or six innings every start, not just for attention, but for the place. And I feel like they'll have good, great, good top team. I think that girls could be just as good as boys. All right. <laughs> Mr. Katz, Mr. Katz, uh, uh, how old are you? It's Shapiro, actually. I'm oh, Shapiro, okay. I was close. <laughs> I'm 10. You're 10? Thank you for that. And do you play? Yes. And I'm a diehard fan. Nice. <laughs> you can stay. I would not be surprised at all in the next, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years to see this happen, to see a woman play in the major leagues. And not just pitching, or uh, I think that the physical training itself for men and women. You just see more athletic builds and bigger people. Uh, I see a lot of uh, female athletes that are very well muscled, and I think that uh, it wouldn't surprise me at some point uh, to see you know, someone playing any of the positions, really, uh, out in the field. I, I think it's, it, it, Isla Borders uh, you know, came pretty close <laughs> a few years ago. I mean, she, uh, it, she was a pitcher, of course, but I, I do think that it's on its way it's, I think it's shocking we did that there hasn't been a woman umpire yet. It's in virtually every other sport, they've, they've adapted. But I remember years ago in Oklahoma City seeing um, Pam Postma work the plate. She got a really rough, really, really rough time. Felt very bad for it, very difficult. But I think an umpire first, and yeah, knuckleball pitcher or middle infielder in the next 10 years, why not? I also think the culture is becoming more accepting, not less. I do think that uh, I think that that would be viewed as something special. I think that uh, teammates would embrace that. That if you were uh, were on a major league team and happened to have the first woman in the major leagues with you, I would think that person would get a lot of support. Myself. It's also financially a problem, completely untapped market. Yeah. That nobody's even, <laughs> looked, <laughs> no one's even looked into yet. Yeah. Jessica Mendoza, I never saw play softball. She was evidently a great softball pitcher at Stanford. And if you want to look at a nice uh, uh, pre, well, just, just a nice thing that happened. Uh, I mean, 
Kurt Schilling got bumped for his latest outrages, and uh, Jessica Mendoza is now a regular on Sunday Night Baseball. And, and uh, Shaw Walter and a lot of people who've been interviewed by her say she knows her stuff. Oh, she, it's seamless when she's yeah. talking with the guys in the booth. It, it's just, just like anybody else. And, and, you know, I hope, I mean, I don't watch Sunday Night Baseball that much because I do have a lot. And, I do think, uh, as my aging eyes tell me, and, you know, that they're not making her up as much as they usually make up those, those people because it's really, it's incredible how they doll up uh, people, uh, you know, the commentators, most of whom, you know, have never or haven't played much sports, you know. Uh, I mean, they make Heather Cox, who was a volleyball uh, player in college, to you know, to be you know, something out of a 1940s movie with incredible costumes, you know. Whatever, that, you know, and then you know, who won? You know, how, how, how did you how, how did it feel when you when you scored the touchdown? Horrible. I was thinking of you know, I didn't do the visuals. <laughs> so I'm. I'm Jessica, you know, is, is a, uh, it, it's a fluke perhaps, but I hope a fluke that turns into something real substantial. I think uh, since we have such an uh, esteemed panel of historians, baseball writers, we should let somebody from the crowd, uh, besides uh, our, young, our youngest fan, maybe you want to mix in too, but anyone else uh, who wants to ask a question about anything baseball related, um, well, the death of Yogi Berra this week calls some attention to the fact that when he played, players like him and Joe DiMaggio actually would have more home runs in a season than strikeouts. They would virtually never strike out. You know, they always have made contact with the ball. And today, it's strikeouts on no-go. I wonder how the panel feels about that change in the game. Well, the strike, they accept strikeouts because big strikeout players usually hit home runs. And, you know, the Astros, you know, building that team with all the, the brainiacs, have a guy like Chris Carter who actually isn't playing as much now. He has 20 home runs. He's hitting 187. And, and, and he's got, uh, he's got, he's, he hasn't played enough that to win the strikeouts, but it used to be 100 was an awful, awful thing. So I think it's, uh, it's, I don't like it, but it's part of power is, is rare and they want people to swing for the fences. He wants in on this. I remember back in mid-May on the big MLB Network stand, I saw the Luis Alguino, one of the other Astros players. Um, in mid-May, he was hitting like 181 at one point with 13 home runs in mid-May. It was very surprising. Well, me and Lee have differences of opinion about this all the time. And uh, I'm a little bit bothered by all the strikeouts, but Lee sometimes can take it as long as the home runs are being, you know. Especially with Chris Davis. Yeah, yeah, we talk about this all the time. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a recurring thing. Uh, you know, it, I think it's, a, it's kind of the, the mentality of the game, the, uh, the entertainment aspect of it, and, and the, the money, you know, that, that, that uh, home run hitters get. And it, it seems to be, uh, it's, it's a glorified act. It's a glorified thing. I like to see runners move around the bases. I like to see teams play small ball. Uh, you know, the Mets' recent resurgence is interesting because you look at them, you know, for a while they had no offense, right? Then, then Cespedes shows up and it turns instant offense. Not only that, they start hitting home runs like crazy. Now you watch them and that's all they're doing is swinging for the fences and, it, and it's disturbing. Uh, in, in, there's no situational hitting going on whatsoever. Uh, no, there's nobody moving runners around. Every single guy is coming up there, you know, thinking that he's got the next home run coming. So uh, it's kind of a, it's, it's, I think it's an epidemic. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh.
Okay. <laughs> Charlie, what actually inspired you to create your book, and, and what exactly can you explain? Is it a rule book or? No, not at all. No, yeah, yeah, no. It's it's uh, I'll, I can explain it. It's, it's more of a, it's very interactive. It comes with a pencil, you know. It, it asks you to do things, and um, so. But uh, really, what it is, it's it's designed to um, create an appreciation for the game, to uh, introduce the game perhaps to people who have kids who haven't necessarily even been introduced to it, uh, and uh, it, you take it with you to a ball game. It's called at the ballpark, and you use it as the game goes by. It, it helps you understand what's unfolding. Uh, the scoreboard, uh, certain rules are in there. Certain uh, you know, it explains things like player positions. It talks about field dimensions. Um, so it's like a printer? Yeah, really, yes, yes, it is. And it could work for kids, but it could work for anybody who doesn't understand the game. I've had friends of mine say that they have people in their lives who maybe don't understand the game so well and would like to have a book to, to figure, help them figure these things out. Um, it's got a kind of a, you know, a mirth to it, too. The pictures are fun and funny. My friend Kevin did the drawings. And uh, we... Here's an example. Yeah, these are... He, these, these pictures that Kevin did tonight, this was based on the conversation we were having about how we played ball when we were kids. So he's got these, these kind of um, scenarios of uh, childhood baseballs. Now some of that is in there, but really this is, the book itself is more focused on you are watching the game. Um, there are some stuff that, some pre-game stuff in there and some post-game stuff and some social stuff that explains uh, where the game is played and by who and stuff like that, but it's really, uh, meant to kind of uh, guide you through nine innings. Can it be used more than once? Uh, some pages, no, but some pages, yes. I mean, it could, you could flip through them, but once you start writing on them, uh, you know, uh, then, then you might need to get another one for another time. Or you could erase it, his pencil. But, uh, you know, but, 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 but the idea, uh, you know, this idea that, that, that Jay has up there about remembering your first game, I think ideally, as a first game, that, that would be a wonderful thing to take with you to the first game. But even if you've been dragged along a few times and still are not sure what's going on out there, I think there's a lot in there to help you. So. <laughs> what do you got? Um, what's your favorite team of all time? Well. One year, one year, not franchise, one year. Oh, one year? The 73 Mets. The 1973 Mets, because I was nine years old in 1973, and I was at that age, like I was just talking about with Perry, where I, I was just coming to the game. And what a great year it was to come to the game, because the Mets were actually a pretty exciting team. I was going to say good. They were, they were pretty good, but they were more than, they weren't, they weren't really good. They were just very exciting. And uh, there, was a, there was a whole lot of drama around them. And you had uh, some, some, some real... Uh, you had Tom Seaver, you had the franchise player still on the team who was the star player of the team. Uh, Tug McGraw was in the bullpen. Uh, my favorite player was a guy named Jerry Grody, the catcher on the team. And so uh, I was a catcher when, in, when I played in Italy. And so I was drawn to him and drawn to the team. Uh, I started going to baseball games around that time in my life. And uh, they, they made it to the playoffs in World Series. They beat the Cincinnati Reds in the playoffs. Who would have thunk it? And they took the... A's to seven games. They even had a three games to two lead and blew it. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, I, I still think, obviously, I still think about the 73 Mets all the time. <laughs> were, were, were you near the, uh, when, uh, that was an amazing, when, when the fans started throwing stuff at Pete Rose. I was on the opposite side of the field. I was up in right field for and, that game. And it was Yogi, Rusty Stout, and, and uh, Seaver? Seaver. I think Cleon Jones might have went out there, too. And talk to the crowd to tell them about it. They were up, Mays. Yeah, Willie Mays. Mays yeah. went yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was a 9-2 game. Yeah. And they were about to forfeit. They had, yeah. uh, Rusty Stout had two home runs in that game. Yeah. And Jerry Kuzman pitched it. And uh, But, uh, yeah, they, they would, you know what we're talking about? The Pete Rose, Bud Harrelson, yeah. So the, the fans back then, and this was a much different day, there was not near as much security. Fans used to take a lot of bottles to games with them back then, glass <laughs> bottles. And you, you saw how many were actually brought to that game because they all ended up out in left field. And uh, they were literally throwing them at Pete Rose during the game. And uh, you know, a contingent of, of, of uh, the Mets, uh, you know, the, the more senior members and the more high profile members of the team had to go out and beg the fans 
to stop throwing garbage at Pete Rose so they could win this game. <laughs> and they, they stopped for a time being. The next day, they let him have it again. <laughs> yeah. I want to continue with the rest of the panel's answer to that same question, but just to note on something you may want to look at after the panel is over, uh, the piece over here, Watch Us Move, that's an original 1973 season ticket brochure. Yes. From the Mets. And the Mets were supposed to do nothing that year. So basically, at the, on the bottom it says, where the, what is it? where the stars will be, and they're promoting all the stars of other teams. Nothing about the old, the old team, other than the guy in the upper right, who's pretty much the only Met that's even focused on it. It's a letter from him pitching season tickets. It's Yogi Berra, the manager of the team. And, and you know, for, for people who the Pete Rose stuff, which I'm glad we're not really talking about tonight, but but why Pete Rose is such a at least a semi-tragic story. He, he was such a competitor, and and a big time. The fourth game after that, he it was extra innings. I'll never forget this. He, he hit the home run that that gave him the lead that won the game, and he goes around the bases, you know, like this. You know? <laughs> and you know, this is why baseball. Is, so deep in us because we're seeing more memories now, right now, in every game in, in September and then and through the playoffs and series. You know, it's a tremendous connective we have, you know, and there are not many connectives left in this country. Yeah, that's true. Russell or Roberta, do you want to chime Russell? Because um, in my favorite would be the '69 team, just because it was it was just so magical, it was so unique and it was new. And yeah. it was fun, and I was 15, and it, it, it was, it, you know, it seems a lot more important when you, as much as we all still <laughs> love the game, it seems a lot more important that the Mets won the World Series in 1969, that they might win the World Series in 2015. And I'm as big a fan, if not bigger, but that, that, that one will never go away. Well, see, mine, mine's a little different because I didn't go to baseball as a kid. So historically, as a historian, my favorite team of all time was the 1952 Indianapolis Clowns. But to go into that, to go into that would be perhaps a little too complicated here. Is that part of your book? Uh, yeah. Just a little plug. Roberta's book is coming out of paperback this week. Black Baseball, Black, Black Business. Yeah. Oh, yes. But I'm hoping to have an event sometime this fall. I loved them because that was the year they had, they were really good too, but that was the year that um, Tony Stone played for them. Uh, though she went over to the Monarchs and she was um, a woman who played organized baseball. Um, and, and, and they were also, they kept the Negro Leagues alive after desegregation. Um, they actually kept the leagues going. But as a, as a contemporary fan, because I obviously didn't see the 52 clowns, um, I am gonna answer a little differently. My favorite team would be the 96 Yankees because I'm a Yankees fan and you can boo all you want, whatever. <laughs> I look, but you know, I'm a New Yorker and I don't remember as a kid this Yankees match because they were never good at the same time. They were never good at the same time. So you kind of, now we would call out a bandwagon front runner. No, you just, you, you embraced the, the city, embraced the teams. It was, it was, everybody loved the 69 Mets. Everybody loved the 69 Mets. But I loved the 96 Yankees, no? Uh, well, in my experience. <laughs> you know, in my little area in Brooklyn. <laughs> I'm speaking personally. <laughs> I love the I love the the '96 uh, Yankees because that's when my kids fell in love with baseball and, and we started going all the time because my, um, my kids were head over heels. Both my my daughter was the one who started it because her best friend was a little boy whose father owned a couple of teams, minor league teams, not me. Um, the kids loved it, and so we bought a partial plan to go to the Yankees so we could take the kids. And of course, I was the one who, you know, 
fever and ended up writing about it as my primary scholarship. But um, to me, they were fun, they were exciting, nobody knew who they were. They, they came, came out of nowhere, nowhere relatively. I mean, the long period, mm -hmm. a long dormant period before the 96 Yankees. Right. I always feel sorry for Don Mattingly because mm -hmm. <laughs> one year before. Right, right. <laughs> Although they did, they did okay in 95. And they even yeah. had a couple of ex-Mets on the team. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but just, they were just fun, exciting, and yeah. unexpected. Yeah. No, I know a lot of people, uh, not a lot, but a couple, a few, who liked that Yankee team because they didn't have stars, you know, yeah. and they were concocted, you know, mm -hmm. Gro Grocious comes out of nowhere, O'Neal, and, uh, you know, uh, I, it's hard for me to choose an Orioles team, but 77 was a great year because we lost Reggie Jackson's a free agent, we lost Bobby Grinch's a free agent, and so they won, wound up winning 97 games, and I, I had a, uh, uh, and they had people out of nowhere hitting home runs, and, Dave Crichon, uh, who built like a fire plug, who I hear found out later his brother was a better prospect and he didn't last more than a month, but he won a game. And I wound up sitting next to the wife of, uh, of one of the Orioles, who's now a third, the first base coach for Houston. I had a very nice visit with her because my friend, who was a good guy, but he talks his head off, he had his wisdom teeth pulled and he couldn't talk, so I managed for two, for two games to sit next to a ball player's wife who was so excited about the beat of the Yankees. You know, they didn't in the end, but it's, they, they gave it a run when people didn't think they could, and that's what it's about. Uh, do you believe the National League will adopt the designation? Um, you know, I, I, I sometimes think it's inevitable that th that will happen. I don't think you're ever going to lose the DH completely. Um, uh, I'm not in favor of that. Uh, you know, it's, it's a valuable position for the players' union. It's a guy who's usually a veteran that's been around, so they're never going to give that spot up. Um, you know, it, it really strikes at strategy. It takes a whole layer of the game out of the game, which I don't like. And uh, I'd like to see the National League hold on and not adopt it. I think. If, if, if it's going to go one way, it'll go that everybody's doing it. But uh, I'd like to see the National League hold on as long as they can. So. I agree. <laughs> and Girardi, you know, who, and the dumbest thing right now, and I don't see any change happening, is that September is now being played with, with skewed rosters. You know, you have, in the old days, or at least, uh, and, and the wonderful thing about baseball is every time you say it, it's, it's, it's never happened before. I mean, it's, it, it's all, there's always been, I mean, Connie Mack, uh, uh, the National League wanted the DH because of Babe Ruth and uh, uh, Al Simmons and, and, and all the home runs were coming in the American League. But the, uh, the American League said, no, no, we don't want it. Uh, so after World War II, the rosters were expanded because of veterans coming back from the war. And, and at least through the late 50s, you had a 35-man roster until May 15. Then you cut down the players you didn't need, you need more seasoning, or it might be released, and you played 25 until the World Series. I mean, now you bring up people from the minor leagues, you can bring up as many as 15. And the reason these games are going four hours is these managerial geniuses or saying, well, he's going to come in with a pitch runner, so I'm going to bring my left-hander. We've got a better move to first base. But some teams have 30 players. Some teams have 38 players. It's not fair. And Girardi doesn't like it. Joe Walter doesn't like it. But the managers who are like foremen, you know, they're not powerful. Uh, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing happening about it. I, I think the expanded roster has had a lot to do with the Mets losing six out of eight games last week. Because Terry Collins had all these knuckleheads to go to, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. they, if they weren't there, he couldn't use them. Yeah. So it was. I was thinking, this is terrible. And he's. I understand what he was trying to do. Perhaps rest guys for the stretch, and you can see that they're going to clinch. And so, he, but he was treating the games. I thought the last those last eight games like throwaway games, and then he was just 
you know, putting anybody out there, and uh, if, uh, if he didn't have that expanded roster, that wouldn't have been uh, an option. And that's so, the thing, and Howie Rose talks about that a lot, about how back previous to divisional play, there'd be 18 teams that were out of the race. So it's fun to see these new players. Yeah. About now they're all in, in, in some sort of a wild card race, so they all have something to play for all season. Yeah, there are definitely more meaningful games yeah. played. We were watching the Cubs and Pirates earlier today, and even though they're both going to the playoffs, uh, I'm concerned that the Pirates are going to have this great season this year and maybe lose because Arietta's going to pitch in that one-game playoff. So I'm hoping the Pirates can catch the Cardinals and that the Cubs will beat the Cardinals instead. <laughs> so, and then, then you'll have a seven-game series between the Cubs and the Pirates, which would be very exciting. <laughs> and for those of us who know the 50s, isn't that that's a nice score about Cubs and Pirates playing or something? <laughs> Like a friend of mine is a big Tiger fan, and he was wistful about the yesterday, the other day, the Indians and the Tigers were playing in a meaningless game again, like in the 50s, because they've been good for so long. You know. So, should I ask a, a World Series prediction of each of you? I don't want to go first. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll say, I'll say Toronto. This may or may not be on tape. We're not sure yet. <laughs> Charlie? All right. As much as I'd like to say the Mets, I don't know if I actually believe they could do it. Uh, you know, it's, it's a nice-looking team, but they seem to be sputtering. I don't know if they got another round of energy in them. I, I would hope so. The Cubs right now look very frightening to me, and mostly because of Arietta. It's looking like a, it feels like a bum gunner situation all over again. And, then, and they're a little bit deeper than that. They're not, I mean, those three teams in the Central are all really good. I'm going to go with Cubs in Kansas City. <laughs> My heart says the Mets, but I think it's going to be the Cardinals. And who in the American League? Kansas City. Okay. I also think the Cubs in Kansas City. Okay. Yeah. Any other questions from the, uh, from the crowd? Yes. Uh, I fell in love with the game when my husband taught me how to score. Do you see this in the stadium? Is it, is it a die card? or people doing it anymore? I score every game Keep I go scoring. to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So but, do I. I mean, yeah. George Will it says he doesn't do it anymore He's, because it's on the scoreboard. But I, it's so, you're involved in the game so much more. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You really, uh, it's, um, and it's, it's, you know, it's destiny. Yeah, I, I do think that it's important to pass that on. Uh, there are rudimentary elements of scoring in the book. It's not a scorebook, but there, it explains how you go about getting started with that. But I think that's a way of uh, you know, definitely gaining a deeper understanding of what's going on and, and being less distracted by all the peripheral stuff. You know, when I'm keeping score, you know, and, and, and it's funny, when I am keeping score, I kind of look around to see who else might be just in case I need to ask a question, I know something, you know, but, you know I mean, you know, uh, I've, I've, I, if I, these days when I go to the bathroom, I take my scorebook with me and I just look for screens the whole way and I try and see if there's, a, sometimes in the men's room there's a radio, oh, you know. No, you'll you'll yeah, find it tomorrow yeah. at Yankee Stadium, you actually hear Susan Wall. Yeah, so I kind of, yeah, so even if I get up, I still take the book with me, yeah. <laughs> I never thought I'd agree with George Will, but I was the same way. I used to keep score religiously until now there's more information on the board than there than you can have on the scorecard. I went to a game at Dodger Stadium a couple of years ago. I was keeping score. And this usher who had to be early 20s, he comes up to me and he says, you're keeping score, aren't you? I say, yeah. He said, nobody does that. <laughs> My father taught me how to keep score. And his father grew up in New York. But he said, no, he never sees anybody keeping score. I think, the, I think the process of teaching someone and, one, and, and that's also a real kind of a relationship bonding experience. You know, if, you, if you're doing that with someone, you know, a friend, a, a kid, a girlfriend, whoever, it, it, I think that it, that's something you'll have in common, uh, you know, and, 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 and I like when people who are learning it look at you and say, did I get that right? Is that, you know, what it is? And then, you know, so it's, it, it's a fun process. <laughs> We have the first 20 games of our marriage in a scorebook. We have no pictures. <laughs> <laughs> we have the first 20 games. We have 115 games. Actually, 19 games. We have 115 innings. UT Austin college game. <laughs>
Yeah. Nice. Yeah, definitely. We'll keep you married to yeah. somebody who can't shut up otherwise. I mean, I have this for before I talk. So, marriage preserving. Yes. <laughs> did, uh, did you ever put in a WW? Did I ever put in a WW? Phil, uh, Phil Rizzuto, who's, who's with the story now with Yogi, I hope. He, he would put in, uh, he would announce a WW on the air, which stands for wasn't watching. <laughs> <laughs> no, Ricky's pretty good track of me. And I, of course, am the outlier once again. My eight-year-old daughter taught me how to keep score. <laughs> I do now, sometimes, but I do see people keeping score. Does, does anyone know why the K uh, a call third strike is a backwards K, and a, uh, uh, a swing third strike is a front K. Because I, I, you know, to me, just sort of being a little visual, I thought the K would be like the swing and miss. You know? the last letter of the word struck? Yeah, but why one is usually, I mean, it's not, it's not written in stone. Are you asking, or do you have the No, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> this is a first. <laughs> I recently read the answer. It's named after someone, and I can't bring it to mind immediately, but... Clyde Klutz. <laughs> well, K, in general, is like the code back. Supposedly, that's the apocalypse. Yeah, but it, go, it goes but way, way back. K, I don't know where yeah. it's from. Well, no, I think the answer might be in the question. I think that you put a K down because the guy struck out. Right. And then you want to figure out how to delineate between, yeah. so you just turn it around. And somebody must have thought of that. I don't know who. But <laughs> All right, can we chat? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, Chadwick with a K at the end. I mean, I don't know when the first backwards K was put in a scorebook. So yeah. you have to <laughs> figure that out. Actually, I have a, the question has nothing to do with that, but another question that somebody asked me in here, and I did not know the answer. So everybody knows, take me out to the ball game. You sing in the seventh inning stretch. They know the refrain. They don't know the first. We, well, <laughs> you certainly do, without question. Uh, by the way, that was a treat. One of the great treats in the five-year history of the clubhouse was when Perry Barber led the crowd and take me out to the ball game. Uh, the entire song. The entire song. So maybe you know this answer, or somebody here does. Somebody asked, yes, getting out to the ballgame is a song in the seventh inning stretch. When did that happen and why? It's, you know, it's relatively recent, I think. I know. I mean, I mean you know, uh, Harry Carey did it. He's, he's got a young man. You know? Um, so I put it in a book. I think it was one of the butchers who was at this game, and then in the middle of the seventh inning, you're talking about Taft. The reason there's a seventh inning stretch is that Taft couldn't sit through. Taft was heavy enough he couldn't sit through a baseball game without standing up at the seventh inning. <laughs> yeah, but there's also the brother Jasper. Brother Jasper. Jasper. Cool. Yeah. Um, it's Harry Carey. Uh, that's when it's when. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Somebody called him Wild. Yeah, no kidding. No, it, uh, <laughs> Harry Carey used to sing it, um, just so the um, the fans around him could hear it, and so it became kind of a thing where the fans sitting around Harry Carey would start singing with him, and then one um, day Bill Beck put a microphone in front of him, and the rest is history. And just like. You know, I think of stuff as, and, and obviously we're all baseball fans sitting here, I think of each ballpark, if, you know, I don't want to extend the, you know, church of baseball thing too far, but each ballpark used to have its own liturgy. It used to have its own call and response, or its own traditions, right? Where somebody would, some, something would happen in one park, uh, uh, take me out to the ball game at Comiskey. Somebody else would do something else at another park. Um, back when the Dodgers were in Brooklyn, they had the Dodgers Symphony who would come and, and you know, get the worms crawl in, the worms crawl out, right? And it seems now that 
ev all these things, everything's expanded to every ballpark, right? Every, everybody's, you know, Sweet Caroline isn't just at Fenway. Wherever you go, especially in the minor leagues, they're singing Sweet Caroline. Um, something that's peculiar to one ballpark seems now to spread. Well, in yeah, Baltimore we have, in Baltimore we have, thank God I'm a country boy, which is yeah, for which better is or like, worse, yeah. I don't really. It's, I, it's better than God bless him. Yeah. No, I, I, I can't. Well, actually, it left for a while because Edward Bennett Williams, when he took over, hated that song, so they brought in Glory Days, they brought in Fog Fogarty Centerfield. Mm -hmm. But it's Fogarty, been. speaking at the 92nd Street Y next month, by the way. It's been in Baltimore as long as, I, as long as I've been in Baltimore, the last two decades. Uh, yeah. I don't know how much, yeah. and I do know its origins with Belanger. Mark Belanger oh, is responsible want? for that. Oh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you know, you know what I'm talking about? In Baltimore, at the, during the seventh inning stretch, they played Take Me, uh, Thank God I'm a Country Boy. Uh, and it seems kind of like, where did this come from? And uh, people get up and start square dancing and stuff, and it's, it's very silly. But it, it has to do with an old shortstop named Mark Belanger. He used to play shortstop for the Orioles. And he, was, he found Take Me Out to the Ball Game to be this very pedestrian song that he didn't like. And he said, we need something a little more lively. And he was a country music fan. And he was, and he was a personal friend of John Denver's. So somehow, Belanger was from like Maine or something. Yeah, Pittsfield. Some, yeah, 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 Pittsfield Mass. Yeah. But somehow he became friendly with John Denver. And uh, he insisted that they do this, though they still do. But why did they play Lou Monty at City Field? I love that song. <laughs> I do too, but where did that come from and why do they keep on playing it? I'm not sure. Well, what about YMCA? Well, yeah. <laughs> well, 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 they used to do Minnie the Moocher at the old stadium, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had a question back there. It seems like um, that guy would have a very successful career pretty you know, movies, food, Yelp. <laughs> the guy that chose the country song? What? Belanger. Yeah. You, you, you know, and, and, and this is straight good. You know, Take Me Out to the Ball Game has a feminist subtext, you know. It, it, it's uh, yes. George Bozewick, you know, and does this incredible, uh, he's a uh, musician, composer, and he has a band, and they do a whole thing on. It's actually not a stuff. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, the, it's the super <laughs> yeah. It's actually the theme of That's right. My favorite version of Taking Out the Ball Game. Katie Kelly, you know. Katie Kelly. My, my favorite well, version. two different. Nellie Kelly or Katie Kelly. The Carly Simon version mm -hmm. is my favorite version of Taking Out to the Ball Game because it just sounds so sincere. It sounds like she really means it. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that, we can definitely go on, on all year with this, but I want to thank the panels, Roberta Newman, Russell Walensky, Charlie Vassilaro, the author of At the Ballpark, and Lee Lowenfish. Thank you very much.